Over the last few years of working in crypto, I've accrued more NFTs and altcoins and random crypto assets than I can count across more chains than I can remember. And it's always been a struggle to find a single crypto wallet where I can track everything I own. That is, until I discovered Zerian. Zerian Wallet is for everything you own on-chain. Yes, that includes all of your assets across more than 14 different blockchains. Zerian is giving people the chance to be true owners by making it simple to explore, collect, mint, test, and contribute to the new internet. Go to zerian.io slash download today to take ownership over your on-chain assets. Hey everybody, welcome to a new season of Rehash. Can you believe it's 2024 already and we're on season seven of the podcast? Today for our first episode of the season, we have DeFi Beats, aka Johnny Gabriel, joining us to talk about how to not get wrecked in crypto, why Wagme is not dead, and his best pieces of advice for newcomers to the crypto and blockchain space. DeFi Beats is an advisor, investor, DeFi power user, good listener, and self-admittedly terrible speller. He initially had his sights set on getting his PhD and becoming a professor, but when that plan fell through, he found himself in a unique job as part management consultant, part podcaster, and part therapist, where he helped numerous people find solutions to problems they were facing across a wide spectrum of areas, from air conditioning to figure skating to life-threatening medical conditions. Today, he has rechanneled his eagerness to help into helping onboard people to the blockchain space and saving people from getting wrecked by their inner degens. He's currently building out an AI chatbot called The Crypto Professor that's designed to help newcomers learn about crypto and stay safe while exploring the space. DeFi Beats is the kind of person who you want to have in your corner and you know will always have your back. And I can't wait for you all to hear our conversation. DeFi Beats was nominated by Parker J. Pasharat and voted onto the podcast by Parker, Jonathan Mann, Themes, Triumph, and myself, Diana Chen. So without further ado, here is my conversation with DeFi Beats, aka Johnny Gabriel. DeFi Beats, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being our very first guest of season seven of Rehash. Thanks for having me. Of course. Shout out Parker for the nomination. She's always got the fire nominations and we have to keep the boys club train going season <laughs> after season. I've had Dina, Natasha, Parker, Blake Vanukin, now you, and I know you've already got the list of people you'd like to nominate for next season in your yeah. mind already. Yeah. The venerable Parker. Uh, yeah. Any, any boys club people that show up on the nomination slip will automatically get some votes from me. So. Yes, yes, we love it. So I want to start off, you actually have a, a pretty interesting journey to where you are today. And so I want to start from the beginning, not not the beginning, beginning, like where you were born, but I want to start with you got your master's degree in psychology from NYU, which then led you into a job in strategy research for Fortune 500 companies. Why don't you start there? And then take me through all the different projects you've had over time, working in you know, political consulting to how you discovered blockchain and crypto and, and what you're doing today. Yeah, no, I'd love to talk about that. And, and to be honest, this little zigzag of a career that I've had so far, and I'm, I'm still relatively young, really makes me have some imposter syndrome. So like when I was 
nominated and then voted on to be on this podcast, I was like, oh no, I, I wanted to do this, but like, what am I going to talk about? Like, I don't feel like I have a lot to say. And it's funny because I spend a lot of my days helping other people get over their imposter syndrome, but I'll be the first to admit that I have a ton of my own. And that's so relatable. I mean, I, I can absolutely relate to that imposter syndrome. And I'm sure everybody tuning in has felt that at one point or another in their career or in their life. Yeah. I, I find that the people who don't have imposter syndrome, I usually don't get along with because I'm like, oh, you think you're hot. Do we call those people <laughs> narcissists? Or? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. They're diagnosable. But so I've always been really into psychology like ever since high school. And funny enough, I, I thought I was going to be a professor and I didn't get into any PhD programs, which was like for the better. Because a funny thing is like, sometimes you don't clear the hurdles that you are strong enough to jump over or even like the hurdles you're supposed to jump over. Right. So like it was only after years after not getting into any PhD programs that I figured out I would have hated it. I took a couple PhD classes in my master's program and I realized that what I thought I wanted and what would have been reality would have been two totally different things. And so I'm very grateful actually, even though I was very bummed out at first. And so my consolation prize for not getting into any PhD programs, NYU offered me a master's program. They're like, hey, we can't give you a PhD, but you want, you want to get a master's here? And I was like, well, I mean, I'm not doing anything else. So sure. And funny enough, this master's program is specifically around management consulting. And so I thought I was going to be a management consultant. And then I met a professor who did strategy research. And he ended up giving me a job in his boutique firm. And I loved this job. I got to fly all around the country and interview people in their living rooms about anything from we've done like laundry all the way to interviewing cancer patients in their hospital beds. I always say I've been in more living rooms than I could count. We'd, we basically would fly around to different cities depending on who the client was. And we would do this. Basically, it was like an unrecorded podcast episode with a strict script. And we'd start off with just like the how you doings and, you know, where are you from and tell me about you a little bit. But I knew I did my job well if they either at the end of the interview started crying or said things like, I can't believe I'm telling you this. Like, you, you can't tell anyone. I'm like, don't worry. It's all anonymous. And that's how I knew we were getting somewhere. And I loved it. I loved talking to people. I loved getting to the heart of a specific matter. Like, a lot of times I would get a project. Like one of my favorite projects was about air conditioners, right? And when I tell people this, they roll their eyes. They're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, we were doing the future of air conditioners. And you have no idea how emotional air conditioners are. We got people in the room crying and, and getting frustrated and, and talking about how angry they are based off of certain things around air conditioners. And that allowed us to kind of tap into not just the what makes a good air conditioner from the nuts and bolts perspective, but also like, what do people want to see? What do they expect? How do we meet their expectations? So that was a lot of fun. I did get really tired of it pretty quickly when I was having people crying about laundry. And I was like, oh, so we're just going to make the new Tide Pod. Or like, oh, great. So now we're going to help you just go sell more cookies. So it was really fun for a while until I kind of took a step back and I was like, I'm like busting my ass and we're like really squeezing all of this interesting juice out of people. But like for what? I was going to say, it kind of sounds like your job was a combination of management consultant and podcaster <laughs> and therapist. Yeah. Right. Is that accurate? Yeah. So then what was like, what was like the end result or the goal of these conversations that you were having? Was it to like just collect data and research or was it to like help them find a solution to whatever their problem was or what was it? So yeah. So someone like, like for instance, the Association for National Figure Skaters came to us and said, people aren't joining figure skating as much as they used to. And so we interviewed 
a bunch of famous Olympians. And then we also interviewed a bunch of 12-year-olds who figure skated and really figured out like what was the essence of figure skating. And we actually came up with the idea of freedom. And so the final product, other than a deck, because everything is a deck, right? So the final product was almost like a book of poetry, actually. I, I think I still have it somewhere. We hired a copywriter specialized in poetry, and he took everything that we learned from the 45 people we interviewed and wrote these like beautiful lines about freedom and figure skating. And then that was used to then create ad campaigns to get people <laughs> to ask their parents to sign them up for figure skating classes to hopefully one day create more Olympians down the line. Gotcha. So was that the story that Parker was saying when she tweeted, I literally need nothing more than to hear about DeFi Beats work as a strategy consultant for Pfizer and the National Ice Skating Association? Is that what she was alluding to? Yeah, I think so. I, I have a, a, a few fun ones. There are some that I could actually only tell in private. Like the Pfizer one is a really good one, but that was with cancer patients. That part was interesting. Like interviewing people who have d diseases that they're suffering from was very humbling and eye-opening. And it was good because why they were actually doing it was they were helping the space move forward. It was more about helping medicine progress, even though they were probably not going to see it. The part I hated about it that I can talk to you about in private is the way certain companies in the medical space talk about their patients and talk about their drugs. Mm -hmm. It's like any conspiracy theory you kind of have in the back of your head, just like Take your favorite 20% is probably true. Yeah, I can see how that would wear on you. And it's almost like you don't want to see what's happening in the kitchen when you go to the restaurant necessarily. And once you see it, it kind of makes you not want to go you, eat out anymore. You do not want to know how the cancer drug sausage is made. Yeah, I can imagine that. So how did you eventually shift that into political consulting? Yeah, so it all starts with me not being very good with bosses. And so the entire time that I was doing this, I was in small boutique firms. Half of me was gravitating towards people who are running the company and they were helping me learn how you run a firm. I always liked the business side of the world, even though I was a very psychology focused person. I love this combination of business and psychology. Turns out it's called economics and I should have just gotten a, a degree <laughs> in econ, but I didn't. So I kind of had to wiggle, wiggle my way there on my own. I had people take me under their wing and teach me, this is how you price a project. This is how you figure out how you staff. And from my master's degree days, I learned about how you hire, how you manage, because that was all management consulting, right? So it was all about hiring and keeping people happy. I don't do well with bosses, which is why I've kind of been an entrepreneur for the last seven to 10 years, depending on how you count. And it's because if I think that there's a better way of doing something, it's really hard for me to not do it that way unless someone convinces me that their way is better. It's infuriating, especially to a boss. So like, especially when I'm a boss, I like tell people, this is how I would do it. And if they want to do it differently, I just need to be convinced. That's my thing. And I think that some people find that infuriating. I just want to make sure that we're always doing things in what I think is a logical, best is not the right word, but at least like we've thought about what we're doing and why we're doing it. So I quit my job in a gigantic ball of fire one day because I got a very rude email from my boss who was demanding that I worked on a Saturday. I try to be good with boundaries and I try to respect other people's boundaries, especially around work. And so I got an email at like 5 p.m. on Thursday and I quit 9 a.m. that Friday morning. <laughs> I just like didn't sleep that night, thought about it, and I was like, you know what? I think I'm done. So I didn't have anything to do. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I shared with you that I have this product on Amazon that was kind of like yep. my test run. It's a little cat cupcake mold. We've sold 10,000 of those in the last 10 years. Wow. Can you believe that? 
Wow. That, yeah, no, that is mind blowing. I, Cause it's, it's really cool. It's a really cool mold. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm going to throw up a photo of it so you can see what it looks like. It's not like a cupcake mold for like Christmas cookies and things like that. It's not like that. It's like a 3D cat. Mold. Yeah. The whole idea is like for children and anyone really who loves cats to decorate it. So yeah, it's basically like a palm sized cat that, that's made of cake. It was kind of like a dry run of learning how to run a business from less the people side, which I felt comfortable with, but more the logistical, the side that you really can't control a lot of. And yeah, we sold 10,000 of those. So, so I had just launched that and I felt like I could take a couple months to figure things out. And luckily my friend Ryan reached out to me two months later. He had just left his job and he was like, Hey, I just left my job. I don't know what I want to do. Do you want to figure something out together? And I was like, yeah, I'd love that. So he was really into politics. This was 2017. So Trump had just taken office. I live in New York city. That was not a good thing for New York city. And so a lot of people saw what was happening in the political sphere and new people started entering politics, which is really interesting because New York in particular has a very strong political machine. And so when all of these people started seeing a political environment that they did not agree with, a lot of first timers, a lot of business owners, a lot of not career politicians threw their hats in the ring and ran for the 2018 midterms. And so we started a political consulting firm slash small business consultancy. So we basically worked for a lot of small campaigns, a lot of small companies and gave them quote unquote fortune 500 experiences because the two of us were trained to work with those types of clients, but gave it to mom and pop shops and really small political campaigns that wouldn't normally be able to afford that sort of stuff. And so we cut our teeth on all of these underdog campaigns. So we were able to double that business's size three years in a row from 2018, 19, 20. And I just recently exited that business actually. And it's still going strong and working with bigger campaigns every day and I'm really oh, proud of what awesome. we built there. Yeah. That's awesome. So why did you decide to leave that? And how did you transition into blockchain? I don't know if this is all connected or if it's separate. Yeah. So the whole thing about going into politics was I was tired of selling cookies. To, and so it was really great to work with people who were very passionate about something. These people were joining politics for the first time because they saw a world they did not want to live in. And that was really great helping them. Unfortunately. This is a bit of a side note. Part of the reason why politics is so polarizing is because the good ones lose. It's really hard for the good people to win. And that's because in order to win an election, in order to be a good governor, a good person in politics, those are two totally different skill sets. Winning an election is a lot of shaking hands and saying the things that people want to hear. And creating a good government is a lot of thinking, a lot of reading, a lot of compromise. And especially with the, the, the world we live in now with social media and, and things getting more and more polarized every day, it's really hard to be the thinking politician, the smart politician, when really what people want to hear are the sound bites. And so threading that needle is really hard. And also people with integrity, which we hope all politicians have, they also end up hurting themselves because they're not willing to play the game, which I agree with. If I was running for office, I don't know that I would want to play the game either. But if you don't play the game, the game gets played on you. <laughs> so long story short, we all know that politics is a duopoly, right? We only have two parties basically to choose from. And it's getting worse because now it feels like which, whichever party you belong to, if you belong to any party at all, it feels like they're getting narrower and narrower in their own ideologies. And so not only are we polarized as a country, but like we're also getting farther and farther and farther apart. And when you have a duopoly, 
there's very little innovation. So the people who I ran into seven years ago when I first started my firm, they were business owners or school teachers. They weren't career politicians. No matter what side of the aisle you're from, that is slowly disappearing. And it's because when you have a duopoly, when things slowly get narrower and narrower, there's only room for certain types of people or certain types of certain thought. And so I see this happening. It's really starting to bother me. And then one day I discover blockchain and I really fall in love with it because all of the things that I, was, I felt like I was fighting for in politics were being represented, ironically, in the blockchain space, right? When I first entered crypto, we we're talking about UBI, we we're talking about fair banking, we we're talking about property rights, all the conversations I wanted to be having that I wanted my clients to be having, we were having in Twitter. And I was like, wait a second, this is where people are actually talking about this stuff. Because if you've been alive for the last five years, you know that that discourse has completely disappeared in politics. I truly think there needs to be a major disruption. And I think crypto is it. I think crypto will be that disruption. And so I fell in love with blockchain and I decided, you know, I think this is where I want to put my energy because I think this is where the ball is actually going to go down the field versus just electing or helping other people get elected, which is important. Politics is still important, but I thought my energies could be better used in this space. So are you still involved with the political side of things at all? Or do you have any aspirations down the line to use what you've learned in the blockchain space to then go back to these political candidates you have connections with and uh, other people in politics to then help educate them and help proliferate th this mentality that we have in the crypto space to the government. Yeah. I mean, my dream is to educate politicians. At the moment, I'm working on educating retail consumers, people on Twitter and stuff like that. The politicians just aren't ready yet. It'll be a couple of months. I asked my business partner being like, hey, anybody asking around? Anyone have any tolerance? I, I don't even want to get paid. You know, I'm just like, hey, will they just talk to me for an hour? The space, unfortunately, and politicians are also very risk averse. The space is a little toxic. The answer has always been no. And so I'm just patiently waiting and also trying to build up my bona fides a little bit so that, yeah, the second any politician, no matter what side of the aisle they're on, wants to talk crypto, I'm ready to be that bridge between politics and the blockchain space. But until then, I'm focusing on the people that will actually listen to me. <laughs> Do you think the only way that we can get politicians' attention and capture their interest is if enough of their constituents are bugging them about this, like enough of their constituents are calling them every day saying, hey, we want this implemented. We want these new forms of exchanging money. Do you think it's only then that politicians will finally be like, okay, okay, fine. I'm interested. Let's talk. That and money. And, and like, honestly, as much as money talks, the first one is actually just as important. Yeah. There are all these tools out there. I think Coinbase has a tool that you can use where you just plug in your zip code and it, it automatically routes your message to the correct congressperson and, and mm -hmm. senator. Yep. That stuff really works. A congressperson only needs 10 messages. So they don't read them, right? Their staff reads it. But these are like rules of thumb in politics where if a, a staffer gets 10 messages on the Congress side, that automatically gets added to the agenda of something that they need to talk about. For Senate, it's about 100. But like Senate's statewide. I'm sure we can find a hundred people right. in right, each right, state right. to coordinate and write in. Cause yeah, once they get a hundred messages, whether it's emails or phone messages, it just n normally rule of thumb, it gets added to their agenda. And it's something that they then talk about during the meeting. And if that happens enough times, they start to realize if a hundred people are willing to call, which very few people are willing to do this 
and leave me a message about this, there must be thousands of people who feel this way that will vote for me one way or another. Gotcha. That's really good to know because I think a lot of people, myself included, think like, oh, if I fill out this form, if I send this email, if I give them a call, what difference is that going to make? You know, like it's just going to go to some intern who's working there and doesn't really care. And it's not going to get passed on to anybody of importance. It's not going to actually get heard. But that's really good to know. 10 people, 10 messages Mm -hmm. sent to a congressperson is going to get attention, get put on the agenda. A hundred people sent to the Senate is going to get attention, get put on the agenda. That's really good to know. And that shows you how few people are doing it because that's not a crypto rule of thumb. That is just a political rule of thumb. So yeah, people are very, very reluctant to to do this. And it's really something that we could do as an industry if we put our mind to it. Yeah, that's definitely achievable. Hopefully everybody who hears this goes and takes action. I'm going to link that. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's literally just the link and you can mm-hmm. click it and it sends an email or sends some kind of blast to uh, your congressperson. Yeah, I'll send you a DM. I'll try perfect. to find it. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, and then I'll link it and hopefully everybody listening goes and just click. It's one click. <laughs> so hopefully everybody listening will go and do that and that it will make a difference as DeFi Beats just said, it doesn't take too many people doing it for it to make a difference. So let's go make that happen. And now that we have AI, a lot of them are are plugging into ChatGPT, which is hilarious. So this way, the message is different. For a while, it was like, we'd love it if you could just copy and paste this. But then the staffer would read that and be like, oh, somebody just had people copy and paste this. But now with AI, you feed it the bullet points, spits out a whole new message that looks different, feels different. You can also move a slider like, do you want to be more angry or do you want to be more sympathetic? (laughs) Love it. So speaking of AI, and I I don't mean to jump too far ahead, but I know you're working on an AI chatbot at the moment that is meant to help onboard new people to the space, which is something that you've spent a lot of your time doing. Can you talk a little bit about what that AI chatbot is? Yeah, I just launched the Twitter today just to be ready for this conversation. But yeah, it's called The Crypto Professor. Basically, I was doing some soul searching. And I was thinking, who do I want to be? What do I want to be? And at the end of the day, I want to be an educator. My dream would be to teach blockchain at a university and to be someone who can be relied on to give good information and deep thoughts about the space and where the space is going. And so in that vein, I was thinking, okay, what could I do? There are too many YouTube videos, too too many YouTube channels, too many podcasts, as we're talking about. They don't give podcasting licenses to white men anymore. So those avenues felt like it would just be too high of a a hurdle. But what I did notice, and this was through help with my, my friend Hunter who inspired me, is that there are very few interactive chats. And so what I'm doing is I'm taking a a GPT and I'm feeding it my brain, which has spent the last two years digesting crypto Twitter and reading articles and watching YouTube videos. And I'm feeding it the best of the best stuff. I'm basically trying to curate a very unbiased, easy to understand. I'm trying to find the best examples of things. I'm also writing some of my own responses. So I've come up with a bunch of questions that I think I would ask if I was new again. And I'm going to formulate the answers in a way that I think work best for a novice audience. And I want this chatbot to be 100% free that anybody can come in and just anonymously and privately ask the questions. This way, people can learn and people can get good information about blockchain without having to parse through. Because if you go into privacy browser and you type into to YouTube, like, what is Bitcoin? Or just type in, like, cryptocurrency. The first six things are people being like, this is going to 100x in the next 30 days. And so I'm trying to grab those people before they see that and go, oh, this space is just a bunch of clowns. Or, oh, it's all about money. Or, oh, it's all just getting rich quick. Uh, and I'm hoping that a combination of 
just being able to have a conversation with an AI so that you can ask it follow-up questions, you can take your time with it, and you can take it down the path that you want to go down versus what that person thinks the path is. And then couple that with either a Twitter profile and maybe some AI-generated YouTube content just to get people to like see that it exists. That's my goal. My goal is to give people a little buddy to hang out with and, and ask questions to. I love that. And I think it's going to be so important and impactful with the next bull run too, as more and more people from the mainstream enter into the space again. And it's always the case that the first thing new people see in the space is speculation, prices, you know, kind of degen things like that. And we just want to save people from themselves. <laughs> Really? Exactly. Yeah. What are some lessons that you've learned in the DeFi space and that you try to impart onto newcomers to the space? On the, the DeFi space specifically or just like blockchain, crypto? I'm curious on the DeFi side first, since we were just talking about saving people from themselves, but then also more broadly as well. <laughs> yeah, I would say I'm a bit of a degen. Before even crypto, I was really into personal finance. I spent just like on my own as like a hobby, if you can even call it that. I spent like 10 years digesting personal finance content and learning about retiring early and this, that, and the other thing. It all kind of comes with the territory of wanting to like be an entrepreneur. When I saw crypto, the first thing I saw was a video game, which was Axie Infinity. And that kind of opened it up to me because uh, I don't know if you've ever played, but the game is just as much DeFi as it is a video game. I don't have a gaming background, so I've never played, <laughs> but I'm very familiar with hearing about it from other people who've played. I think the only blockchain game I've played is Dark Forest. Mm -hmm. Have you played that one? I haven't. Do you like it? I liked it. It was kind of hard to get into at first. Luckily, I had somebody who was very deeply involved in Dark Forest held this tutorial session on like a Saturday mm -hmm. morning and taught us all how to play Dark Forest and walked us through it. And so I basically just spent like eight hours playing that on a Saturday. I and then <laughs> I haven't touched it again, mostly because see, this is like, this is the reason why I, I don't game and I am like too scared to get into it now is because I think it would be too addicting for me mm -hmm. and it would just like kill all of my time and I wouldn't get anything done. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm having that right now with, are you, do you know the game Stardew Valley? No, I don't know that one. Well, there's a really popular game called Stardew Valley. There's a blockchain game. That's kind of like the, a love letter to Stardew Valley called pixels okay. right now. And they're so they're simultaneously, it's a fun game to play and they're doing an airdrop. And so I've just been like, like, I'm surprised I'm not clicking around right now just trying to, like, <laughs> harvest pumpkins just so I can get more pumpkins harvested today. Okay, right? so you've, you've got a degen bone in your body. So yeah. how has that been, like, balancing that degen intuition that you have with not wrecking yourself entirely? <laughs> yeah, and to more succinctly answer your question about the advice I give other people, for me, it's always been a matter of balance and permission. For instance, when it comes to my crypto stack, I give myself, I give myself permission to play around and be degen with like 10%, not a penny more. The other 90% is staked ETH and things that I believe in that I don't plan on touching for months, if not years. But I am a bit of a, a gambler. I think all entrepreneurs are. Entrepreneurship is basically just socially acceptable gambling. It's like, yeah, give me a million dollars. I'll turn it into 10. Yeah, give me. <laughs> so I know that I'm always going to want to play and experiment and gamble and all that stuff. And so the advice I give people and the advice I follow myself is that you got to give yourself like a, a fun bucket and then the rest is, it has to be locked away. Give the ledger to your best friend, lock it up in a vault 
But allow yourself to have a little bit of fun with 10%. Leverage can be fun, but you only need to get wiped out once before you realize that leverage is way more complicated. Literally, the the, the thing with leverage is that if you think it's going to go up, it can go up a lot and you can still get wrecked because if it goes down first, you get liquidated and then you miss the run-up. And so you know, the first thing I think a lot of DGENs do is they either buy really illiquid things like meme coins and NFTs or they play around with leverage. And so... Honestly, the best advice is know that you're going to lose money or know that you're going to get wrecked. So do it with a really, really, really small amount that you're not going to get upset over. Find your tribe. I have a group of, of DGENs in my life that I talk to on a daily basis. And I think they follow the same philosophy as me where they have like 10% stack, but they are my safety net where if there's a new protocol that I think I have a good handle on it, but I'm not 100% sure, I just copy and paste the docs into the chat and I say, has anyone heard of this? Am I going to get wrecked? And like, they'll literally open up the docs and start reading and they'll pull a paragraph being like, look at this. I wouldn't touch this with a 10 foot pole or, oh yeah, this is kind of like that thing. You know, I don't see anything wrong with this. And so I have a small amount that's riskable. And I also have luckily found my crypto tribe and we're really good at looking out for each other. Yeah. So pretty much everyone I've talked to in the space who's successful has said as one of their biggest pieces of advice is to find your tribe, find that group chat of friends that are going to have your back, that are going to give you advice. And this is the best way to learn and the best way to also not get wrecked in the space. But also a very common question I've heard from people is how do I find that group chat? How do Mm -hmm. I find that community of people? Like, how did you go about doing that? Mm -hmm. So I'll tell you exactly how I went around doing it, but I think it boils down to just allowing yourself to be vulnerable. It's so hard to make friends in your 30s or in your, even in your 20s, right? As you become an adult, it just becomes harder and harder to make friends. And I think the first thing you have to do is understand that you're entering this new space and that there are plenty of people out there who are going to want to be your friend, so to speak, and that you just have to kind of like put yourself out there. I got very lucky where... I joined the space at the Pico Top, which also, I don't know if that was made it easier or harder, but I started on crypto Twitter like everybody else. And I noticed that everyone with a crypto coven, you know, the crypto coven NFT project? I've got one. Yeah. I I think my LinkedIn profile pic is still my crypto coven. I have four now because I'm so in love with the community because I was on Twitter and I was noticing that a lot of smart people, a lot of not so bro-y people, which is the boys club mantra and isn't always you know, a femme it could like, I'm not very bro which is why I'm allowed to hang out with them sometimes. And so I noticed that the right voices were coming out of people with those PFPs. And so I just made it a rule that I would follow every single person that had a crypto coven PFP. And I got one myself. I wouldn't even say that I am part of the crypto coven community. I would say that that was a moment of clarity where I was like, oh, this is one way that people signify that they are X, Y, and Z. And I want more of those people in my life. And so I just literally blind followed every crypto coven. Luckily, it was easy for me to find friends in the space. It's a little bit harder to make money, but that's any space, right? But as I cemented myself as a professional in the space, I like made more friends along the way. And I think crypto is a very unique place for that because it's not a zero-sum environment. Some other careers... It's like people are a little more guarded and walled off. I don't know why, but I noticed that the people in this space are 10 times more welcoming and more open to share ideas and like secrets and stuff like that and what they're working on than any other industry. So I think if you come to the space with curiosity and, and you allow yourself to be vulnerable, 
and you take the time to take a step back and try and parse a little bit of signal out of the noise of crypto Twitter, which is hard, admittedly. But if you do that and then you follow those breadcrumbs, I think it's inevitable that you'll find your tribe. That's a really good strategy, actually, is getting in through a PFP community, finding something that resonates with you, and then just going hard and deep into that community and befriending everyone there. And then through that community, you can meet other people, you can branch out and meet other people from different communities. But you mentioned that it was easy for you to make friends in crypto, but harder to make money. Can you explain a little more about what your experience with that was and how you view that more generally with maybe not just yourself, but people in other areas that are working in crypto that are struggling with this? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think everyone I know has been in this place at some point where they're like, okay, I, I learned enough. Like I've caught up. I love the space. Can someone pay me? Like, I'd love to quit my day job and do more of this. Or, this is really cool. But like, I kind of need, especially if these coins aren't going to go up anytime soon. Cause like I said, I got in at the top of the, the bear market. It's like, I kind of need someone to help me pay my rent. <laughs> and, um, and I think a lot of people, I'm sure you have also been here at some point feeling like feeling this way. There are a lot of people who are very specialized. So if you're a lawyer, a really good marketer, a dev, this is an easy thing for you to do, right? It's just like, hey, I know Solidity. But if you don't fit into those categories, it's always really hard for people to figure out where to go and what to do. I will say that looking back, I've definitely come up with commandments or rules of thumb that I think really unlocked the space for me. So the first one is probably the most important. And this isn't exclusive to newcomers. This advice I would also give like founders and people who have been in the space, like anyone who just wants change. So my mentor, when I started kind of exploring the space, gave me a piece of advice. He said, just ask people how you can help. Just go up to people and ask them how you can help them. Because I think a lot of people will default with, how can I get a job? Or how can I do something that will pay me? Or how do I make money? Which is a good question to ask. But other people can't answer that for you. They can only answer how that happened for them. They can't answer how to, and especially in the world, even is different from one day to the next. And so even if they just got into the space a day before you, how they did it might not necessarily be how you do it. And so if instead you ask others how you can help them, that really opens up the conversation because what is getting paid other than you're helping someone, sometimes it's even a consumer, which is why I would like say that founders should think this way as well. It's like, how many times do we find products out there in search of a problem? And it's because no one stopped to ask, who is this helping? How is this helping? So I would say, ask as many people as humanly possible how you can help, because some of them will only need you to introduce them to someone, or someone will just need an ear or to proofread something. Like You're not going to immediately just get people to pay you because you ask them, how can I help you, right? Some people don't have money to pay you. But if you are a helpful person, if you're going around this world, putting other people first, within reason, obviously, like I said, I'm very big on boundaries. But within reason, if you run around this world trying to help people, eventually you will run into a situation where you can say, hey, I think I can get paid for this. Like, hey, I've been doing this for two weeks. This is really a paid thing. And I would like to talk about that. It's a hard conversation to have, but th that is probably the lowest barrier way of getting into this space. 
it's like a combination of what I love about the space is that I don't think it's zero sum. Actually, I don't think the world is zero sum. If a business competitor comes up to me and asks me for help, I'm way more likely to help them than I am to tell them to go take a walk. And that's because I think there's a lot of artificial scarcity out there, especially in the professional space. Like, I don't know, if you and I were trying to collect all of the rarest gems in the world, that is a zero sum world game. But when it comes to creating value, there's room for many AMMs. There's room for many lending protocols. There's there's so much space and room that there's no need to be cutthroat. Because at the end of the day, if a competitor comes to me or if somebody who quote unquote competes with me comes to me and says, hey, I, I need help with this, I'm much more likely to help them because at the end of the day, I'd rather the two of us do something bigger together than the two of us racing with each other to, to the finish line. And I think this space really exemplifies that. And I love that about it. So if you remember that, I think it's important when you're asking people how you can help them to not immediately think in your head, I'm going to help them so then they have to help me. People like to talk about scarcity versus abundance mindset. I think I, I prefer to think more about a fixed mindset versus a non-fixed mindset. People need to figure out what they want in return. And if the only thing you want in return when you ask someone for help is like, tit for tat. Like if I introduce you to this person, you need to introduce me to that person. Or if I do this for you, then you're going to do this for me. That's a very limiting way of, of living. And it's almost like you're assuming that the world is so fixed and so zero sum that it's like, if I give you this and you don't give me something in return, you basically stole from me. Obviously some of it is selfish. Like I just want to be helpful. But like some of it is selfish and that's okay. We need to look out for ourselves and we need to do things to further our own goals. And so like when I sit down and I think, what do I want in return when I ask people how I can help them? Honestly, a lot of times I want a friend. Like I just want another person in my network who I can trust and who can trust me. For me, that is a much more abundant belief where I'm going to help this person, not because then, then they can turn around and help me, but because I want them to join my little bubble, right? I was like very, very honored and also very surprised when the votes came in. I knew a lot of the people who were being voted on and I was like, oh, I'm never going to make it in the top 11. But then I looked through your past guests and I was like, oh, wait, I know these people. And so I just sent little DMs to people asking them for help. And I think the reason why I was able to do that was because what I'm trying to get out of the space is friendship. I want to know a bunch of other people. I want to help them. And then if they have the capacity, I want them to help me. And so I think the big difference there is just being very honest with yourself, what you want in return. And if what you want in return is money and power and fame, people are going to really figure that out quickly. And you're going to have a hard time making friends because you're not trying to make friends. You're trying to make money. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's super transactional. And I mean, a lot of that is just how our society, at least like both of us were US based, how our culture is based around this idea of capitalism. And that doesn't really lend itself to this positive sum mentality that you've been talking about. But really, like I've seen this in my own life and then in other people's lives as well. If you do try and put out this positive sum mentality, this mentality of I'm here to provide value. I'm here to help other people. That really will come back to you 
Whereas on the flip side, when you're sitting in this mentality of desperation, like I, I need a job now, I need this now, I need someone to pay me now. And of course, sometimes we find ourselves in these situations, not by choice, obviously, and we do need to take care of that immediately. But if we're able to get out of that and get in more of a positive sum mentality of, I wanna be in this space in the long term, I wanna provide value, so, what I'm here to do isn't to extract value or even have an exchange of value with everybody I cross paths with right in this instance, but rather to create this community of people around me who I can benefit and who can look out for me too in the long run. That's really the sort of community and the sort of mentality that we want to sit in and that's going to bring us the most good and the most benefit in the long term. So yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you on that. And I know the, the whole wag me thing has kind of gone out of style a little bit, even borderline cringe, but I think there is definitely some truth to that still, not necessarily in a strict economic sense, but in the sense of there are areas in crypto and in life where we can really have a positive sum at the end of the day. And by having that mentality, I think we're just really putting ourselves in a better position. We're lending ourselves to be more helpful, to provide more value without looking for something in return that's going to benefit us more in the long run. Mm -hmm. So I hear you 100% on that. Yeah. And I think if you believe in the space, even if you just believe in cryptocurrency, you're, you're believing in the idea that value was created out of thin air. And that value being created is basically the stuff that we exchange through each other. To say that we live in a zero-sum world and to then also say that you can create a coin that is worth X, Y, Z, those are just incongruent. There's just a lot more to go around than I think we were told as Americans. And if we remember that, it's a lot easier to cooperate instead of compete. A lot of it is cultural, for sure. And I, I'd be curious to hear if people are listening from other parts of the world, You know, tweet us your thoughts and how your experiences differ from ours. But I want to make sure we get to a question from Chris B, the NFT thinker on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Chris asked, well, a couple of questions. One is a, a little less serious. Maybe we'll start with that. Chris asked, how often do you feed your sourdough starter? <laughs> yeah, I know, Chris. I used to feed my sourdough starter every day. And then I learned that you can put it in the fridge for up to a month and it's perfectly fine. So I now feed my wow. sourdough starter Roughly once a month, unless I'm going to use it, then I about two or three days before I use it. Baking with DeFi. Two or three days before I use it, I, I take it out and wake it up and feed it every day so that it's nice and awake. Wow. Is that really a thing, baking with DeFi? Do we have an account for this we can follow? Some video tutorials about baking? I would uh, love that. I'll happily, happily make some video tutorials. Amazing. And then the other question, the more serious question from Chris is, what's a good reason for a project to have a token? Why should projects avoid tokens? Are points a good substitute for tokens or is it just a different name for the same thing? So tokens exist for, I think, two different reasons. I've been playing around with this verbiage around this. So the first reason is the most obvious where it's the Gary Gensler no-no like basically it's a stock and if that's what you want to do and your jurisdiction allows it i think that's perfectly fine actually that's three the, the second one would be like a utility where people purchase your token in order to then redeem it one way or another the next like in the future so that could be voting rights that could be something like what link does where you need it in order to use the system and so you can either pre-purchase it or 
purchase it on demand. Like ETH does that, right? ETH's tokenomics is if you want to pay for gas, you have to have some ETH. The most interesting use of tokenomics, if you don't fall into those two categories for me, is this idea around self-regulating systems. And so like, let's say you have a pen and you're going to make it worth USDC. And so that pen goes up and down in value depending on who owned it before and all that good stuff. In order for another token to be in that system to be valuable, we're trying to balance two value systems. And so when we're trying to both value the ecosystem and the thing that we're purchasing at the same time, a token can be very valuable. So let's say you're purchasing an hour of time, but that hour of time is also a function of who those people are. So let's say you and I are starting a consulting firm. If we're going to start a consulting firm, we can either get paid in USDC or we can get paid in our token. If we're getting paid in USDC, people are just valuing the one-off transaction of getting an hour of your time. If we introduce a token to that system, and this is probably one of the only times I would say a system needs a token other than the other two systems, and then most people actually don't need tokens. If we want people to value the entire ecosystem, we can create a token for the whole group of our consultants that can go up and down based on how the group is doing as a whole and how valuable the group is as a whole. And then individuals within that group can price their time based off of our token. And so this way, two variables are being accounted for at the same time. And that happens in real life, right? My hourly rate is different from your hourly rate. By introducing a second token, it allows us to do that calculation a lot faster because the market will value the group and then the market can value the individual and those things go up and down independently. It's a little complex, but to sum it up in like a one sentence, when there's more than one variable you're trying to affect and you're trying to measure and have them be tied together, like the value of someone's time, the value of a network, a token can be useful. To truly answer Chris's question though, most projects don't need tokens unless they're trying to raise money which is what a lot of projects are doing. I think Maya Bakai mentioned this on our last episode from season six, that as a VC, you just want to see the token price go up. And when that token price goes up and then you cash out, that serves your best interest as a VC. It's not to make sure the project is providing the most actual value or other things that the founder might be concerned with. So that creates some sort of disconnect. But Yet people get really hyped about tokens and everybody's still doing it. Yeah. I mean, I work with a lot of VCs in my advisory work and I've heard, at least in the last bull market, if you didn't plan to launch a token, you were almost uninvestable because like VCs need exit liquidity or else their business model doesn't work. And so a lot of tokens were just thinly veiled payout structures to but basically paying back the loan <laughs> that people were getting from VCs and packaged as utility or what name your your narrative of choice. But it was basically the secret was just like, but we got to pay these guys back or else we can get mad at us. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, last question I have for you since we're in the beginning of the year and we are all feeling a little bullish, I think about 2024, I just want to ask you, will we reach all-time high with Ethereum and or Bitcoin this year? And if so, what is that price going to be? All right, hold on. Let me get my crystal ball real quick. All right. My my gut and my heart is telling me yes to both. I've gone on record to say that I think we're going to hit 8K ETH and 100K Whoa. Bitcoin by end of year. Wow. Wow. Okay. That is hyper bullish because I believe the all-time high for Ethereum so far is like 4,800 mm -hmm. more or less. 
So you're saying we're going to almost double that amount this year. When you put it like that, yes, that is what I'm saying. Wow. All right. Well, I'm, I love that optimism and I certainly hope you're right. Big things will happen. I might have to sell some NFTs and buy a house if that happens. So <laughs> keeping my fingers crossed. Last thing before you go, tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally. And then also feel free to plug away at anything, remind people about your AI chatbot, how they can find that and anything else you'd like. Yeah. So if you anyone wants to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at DeFi Beats, DeFi underscore Beats on Twitter. I'm going to be posting a lot about the crypto professor. So definitely follow me if you want to play around with the, the chatbot and give it to your sisters and, and brothers and friends and cousins who, who you've been trying to get into crypto for a long time. And yeah, no, that's it. We'll include all of that in the show notes to make it easy for people. The crypto professor is the AI chatbot that DeFi Beats is building. And definitely go hit him up. Thank you so much for being our first episode of season seven. Congrats again for getting the most number of votes in our season seven <laughs> contest and for sharing your secret for how you made that happen. And thanks everybody for tuning in. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Rehash. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Diana Chen, and sponsored by Zarian. Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. Collectors will also be able to tune into our recordings live at pleaser.house and hear our episodes early and unedited. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at RehashWeb3 or on Warpcast or Lens at Rehash. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.